Welcome back to the Vetted VA Podcast. We are about to jump into something that, frankly, feels like a Wizard of Oz type scenario where you're not supposed to look behind the curtain. But honestly, that curtain is split wide apart because everything that underwriting needs to do in your loan should be easily understood. We're joined by Randy Teekle and Gay Veal of Vetted VA, both two independent mortgage brokers hosted by Josh Lewis in California, and they're going to talk about understanding the underwriting process of the VA loan. Something that I think you should tune into, the questions asked and answered will be beneficial if you're looking at going through the process or recently have gone through the underwriting process for a loan and really want to understand what's going on behind those scenes. Now, let's get started. We're going to be discussing VA underwriting and just underwriting in general. This one is an important one because it's a big, scary word that a lot of times when we as loan originators talk about underwriting, that it's a hairy thing where a borrower goes, what does that mean? Are they going to tell me no? Is that the person that's going to say, I I don't qualify? I don't make enough money. The house isn't good enough. So we're going to go through everything that your VA underwriter looks at and, um, Fun fact, whether you're using VA financing, conventional, jumbo, FHA, USDA, pretty much the same. We'll go through a couple of the unique quirks of what a VA underwriter looks at on a VA file versus some of those other types of loan programs. But for the most part, it's consistent across the board. So with that, Randy, why don't we jump in here and tell us big picture, 10,000 foot view, what is mortgage underwriting? Yeah, so so one of the things that that uh, before we get too deep in that is I wanted to make uh, uh, a, a a bold statement, but it's the truth is that the VA underwriting the the underwriting guidelines for VA are the only set of guidelines that encourage the approval by the underwriter. It, it's actually right in black and white. It says that you know they are they give the guidance to if you can find a way to make it work, make it work. So in, in our world that we live in, an underwriter basically is the person that, that dots the I's and checks the, crosses the T's and makes sure that everything meets guidelines, et cetera. Um, and, and like we talked about, the, like conventionals got pretty much black and white. You, you either meet it or you don't meet it. And then uh, uh, when you've got, you know, FHA has some leniency to it. Um, but the VA is the only set of guidelines that actually say, underwriter, find a way to make this work. So um, typically the, the process is that we as, as originators have um, automated underwriting and we have a pretty good idea of what's gonna, what's gonna fly, what's gonna be approved. Um, and then, um, so we give pretty much the same thing right up front. Uh, we, we're going to gather the, the three C's, which are your your um, character or credit, how that how that works, etc. Capacity, which is basically your budget, and then the third one is collateral. And and whenever we take a look at all those sorts of things, um, package that all together, we we put what we think is an approvable file that we believe meets the guidelines, and we send that to the underwriter. And the underwriter takes a look at everything, checks all the I's, dots the T's, makes sure that uh, everything is what it's supposed to be, and then gives it back to us with conditions that are basically just sometimes clarification that's needed um, from, 
you know, her, her is or her look at everything. Does that make sense, Josh? Absolutely. And, and to your point about underwriter discretion and the underwriter being encouraged to see things in favor of the veteran borrower, absolutely unique to the VA loan program. And it's one of the reasons why we're here tonight, because Christopher put this program vetted VA and a vetting system for professionals on the mortgage and real estate side together because the actual handbook is less detailed than almost any other loan program. There's more gray and more open to interpretation, but also with the flexibility and the direction to the underwriter to see it in the veteran borrower's benefit without putting them at unnecessary risk. So we all go through the vetting process, extensive training, extensive feedback, um, talking amongst one another in private groups of saying, hey, here's this weird gray situation. How do we make this be a, a positive? So for we actually, Gay, we told them you were having some technical difficulties. So Gay Veal's joining Thanks. us from, from Colorado Springs. So she will be uh, actually sharing her insights here and giving us some information. Gay, maybe you can, can help everyone with this. One of the big misconceptions when it comes to underwriting is, hey, I'm getting a VA loan once Randy or Gay or Josh is done with my loan, it has to go to the VA. Does the VA play any role in actually underwriting your loan? Uh, very, very, very rarely. So there's um, like, and, and even when the VA does get involved in, in, in a pre-approval type situation, um, it's still not really underwriting the loan per se. The lender still is the one who is underwriting the loan. It is very, very rarely does the VA have anything to do with it. Yeah, and without going down that rabbit hole, there's a couple. Of, yeah, because we could totally go down that. <laughs> that require it to go, but for ninety nine point five percent of you watching this show, VA will not yeah. get involved. It's it's no. your loan officer, then it gets handed over to a processor, and then it gets handed to underwriting. So right. maybe Gay, you could give some insight for for everyone watching. What are those roles? What do you as a loan officer do on that front end? And yep. then once we have a contract on a purchase a transaction, what is a processor? What do they do in prepping that file for underwriting? And then we'll kind of jump into once we get it to the underwriter, what are they looking at and what are they doing? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think each uh, company and each uh, loan officer team structure type is going to have their own kind of processes. Uh, but but generally speaking, um, you know, you're going to um, speak uh, in, in the broker world anyway, you're going to speak with a, a loan officer first. Um, and a lot and sometimes that'll be the only person you ever speak with. There may not be a loan officer assistant or a processor or anybody between that loan officer and the underwriting team. It may just be you and the loan officer and underwriting and that's it. Um, but if there are other people, there could be a loan officer assistant who may help the, um, the uh, loan officer get the file set up. So they may help in collecting documents up front, um, uh, structuring, uh, you know, the the loan getting it ready to be submitted to the to, to underwriting um and you know that that sort of thing maybe verifying that we have all the documents that we need um so on and so forth depending on the role of the uh the loan processor and then once you get under contract um and now it's time to get the loan actually submitted to processing like my excuse me to underwriting my process is that I get the loan myself and my loan officer assistant get the loan submitted to underwriting. And then once the loan has been underwritten and conditionally approved, 
then my processor steps in and takes the loan over from there. So she'll collect any additional documents that are needed for uh, for underwriting, maybe verifications of employment, um, maybe verificate like deposits, uh, things like that. She'll verify uh, things like the earnest money deposit. You know, she'll source that that money, any other monies that need to be sourced. She'll order title. Uh, pay, you know, she'll order all the title work for the loan. Um, she also takes care of making sure that the borrower has insurance and all of the appropriate insurance binder is uploaded um, to the file and um, <clears throat> will work back and forth with the underwriter. And very rarely, if I've done my job up front, done a really good job of getting the file prepped for them, very rarely does she have to come back to me and ask me to intervene um, uh, with something that the underwriter is asking for that maybe she doesn't feel comfortable with getting from the borrower. Maybe the borrower doesn't understand. Um, so she might come back to me um, and ask me questions. But once, uh, you know, she'll, she'll take all of those documents that she collects, resubmits everything to the underwriting for a second look, um, and then um, hopefully we get clear to close. There are some other things that happen in there, like an appraisal. I think we'll dive into that. Um, you know, I don't want to, like, spend the full 30 minutes just talking about the underwriting process by myself. But, yeah, so that's kind of like the delineation of the roles if you are working with a team that has those roles associated with, with their team. Otherwise, it could just be you, the loan officer, you know, so the borrower, the loan officer, and, and the underwriting team, and that's it. And we actually have people in the vetted VA community that are very small broker shops that they do everything themselves. Yes. They they yep. are the processor. They are the loan officer. Yep. So the way I kind of like to explain it to people is the loan officer is the front end consultant that is working with you to do that mm -hmm. pre-approval, to gather all the documentation. Just like Gay said, if she's done her job with that well, that approval is going to come out really, really clean. And then there's this in-between process. The underwriter is at the far end, and really they're just the judge saying, yes or no, this does or doesn't meet the guidelines. And I need these things in my file to make sure that it meets all of the VA guidelines and is sellable in the secondary market. That processor, which may or may not exist, some loan officers do that stuff themselves, it's detailed clerical work. So I don't say clerical like mm -hmm. low level. It is detailed. Insurance is unique. Appraisals are unique. Title work is unique. So they are highly trained in the types of documentation that needs to go in the file. So while your loan officer is out helping other borrowers buy the home, find homes, get qualified, they are working to make sure that the files move forward and the underwriter is getting everything that they need in there. Um, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but before we kind of move completely into what that underwriter is actually doing, Randy, why don't you just close the loop and explain if a borrower, because I get this question regularly. Well, um, I thought you said I was pre-approved. What does the underwriter do or why does the underwriter have to sign off on it? What's the difference between your front end process of pre-approving a borrower and how does that vary and is different from what the underwriter does later in the process? Well, for, for, for my sake, I think the biggest thing that, that I do is structure the file according to the ways that I believe that it meets guidelines the way that we can best put this borrower in front of them. Um, and and uh, I do everything. I, I collect all the documents up front. I look at the, uh, the uh, income documents. I, I look at uh, everything that I have access to to begin with, which obviously part of the piece of the puzzle is that I don't have everything to begin with. I have almost everything about the borrower. 
Um, I, I'm going to have uh, W-2s if they're W-2s. I'm going to have tax returns. I'm going to look at all the income documents, et cetera, and make sure that, that they fit that. And then I'm going to plug those into the loan origination system um, to, to tell me what the debt ratio is, et cetera, um, and, and use my past experience to, to use the right number. Like typically, I'll be conservative in that if I don't need a, uh, overtime to make a deal work because it's variable income and I can just use a, a base pay, then I structure it accordingly. But if I need it, then then I'm going to uh, dot a couple of I's and T's myself to make sure that that overtime has been consistent for the last two years, et cetera. So when it's all said and done for, for me, um, I, I'm using my experience and, and my expertise to make sure that, that this borrower is a fit for the guidelines and for that particular property, that that particular situation. Um, but but I don't see everything and and I can't see it all to begin with because as the my structure is all in place around the borrower, then when I hand it off to the processor, the processor is the one that's getting all the verifications. They're getting the verification of employment that that you know verifies what the pay stubs that I saw. I didn't necessarily get to see that, but if she's got an issue with it, she'll call me. Um, and, and then uh, they're also getting the, the title work on the property itself. They're ordering the appraisal. Um, and so we're going to get those, all those pieces back together. And typically I've got a, a full approval based on the borrower and based on what we think the situation is. But then I hand it off to the processor to actually verify everything so that we there's all the gaps are taken out. And then the underwriter is the one that blesses all those um, accordingly. They, if they agree or disagree with my with my income, then they're gonna we're gonna have a conversation about it, um, and I'll tell them why I did what I what I did. Typically, I write a, a letter or, or a intro with the file that says this is this is how I'm doing it. They do have overtime. I'm not using it. I'm just using this. Um, they've been on the job for you know two and a half years, so using the last two years average. It's all a package, but then the underwriter has to make sure that they agree with all that and make sure that it meets the guidelines. But plus the underwriter gets to review the actual title work, the actual appraisal, uh, you know, the actual verification of employment, et cetera, and, and make sure that all that goes against the guidelines and works as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and we'll talk a little bit later in the show, and we talk nearly every show here, that it is very important that you work with an expert mortgage originator that is experienced with VA loans. Doesn't have to be a vetted VA pro, but it has to be someone who is experienced in, in VA loans. Because I can say, knowing Randy, knowing Gay, that 99.9% .9 of the time, there are going to be no issues. So yes, the underwriter is the rubber stamp at the end of the line that says yes or no, but it is incredibly rare that something is going to slide past the two of these folks. I also know from doing lots of cross qualifications coming in at the 11th hour to fix files for other people that that is not the case. It would be, would be lucky to say it's 80, 85% with the industry as a whole, but um, mm -hmm. these two and nearly everyone in the vetted community, once you've gone through that process, everyone here is committed to knowing how essential it is that you can't find out two or three weeks into a process when you've given notice on your apartment that, oops, I missed that part and you don't qualify. So we all, truly do pre-underwrite that file. Randy's 100% correct that we don't have a 100% file. 
but it's almost like our job is to pour a really good foundation, get the house framed up right, make sure we have everything here according to plans. Then there are other important pieces that still have to happen. But as long as you're in good hands, you've done your part in providing your documentation on the front and the person that you're working with is experienced, it is very rare that you have an issue or a problem. So with that, let's jump into what is getting reviewed by that, that underwriter. In big, broad strokes, there's four pieces of it. They're looking at your income. They're looking at your assets. Less important on VA loans, since a lot of them are, are zero down. They're looking at your credit history to make sure you, you have a solid history. And then they're looking at the, the property. We talked about appraisal, we talked about title work. But why don't you start at the top for us, Gay? And when an underwriter gets a file and she starts analyzing income, what, what are they doing? What are they looking at? What should we have provided to them to make a solid underwriting decision in confirming the qualifying income and that it is sufficient to meet the guidelines? Yeah, I mean, basically when you're talking about verifying income, the biggest thing that we're looking for is your ability to repay the loan. It's a mandatory requirement with every single loan um, that a loan officer originates. Um, every single lender, you know, um, gives money for, right, lends money for, they want to make sure you can repay it. Um, and so that's the biggest thing that we're looking for on the income. Um, we're going to evaluate the income, um, make sure that um, we've calculated everything correctly. Um, do you get paid hourly? Do you get paid you know, a salary? Is it monthly? Is there overtime? How consistent is the overtime? Is it variable pay? Um, it, you know, it, are there any employment gaps? Um, have you changed jobs recently? Do you have a new job? Are you using projected income? There are so many different, um, you know, facets here that go into verifying income. You know, if you're, act, you know, active duty, E7, you know, E5, whatever, you know, it, it's pretty easy to verify that. But, you know, if you're a ER nurse um, who works, you know, gets varying pay, depending if you're working after hours or if you're working on the weekend or, you know, so like a shift differential or trauma differential or something like that, the pay can be all over the place and can be really, really difficult to um, to calculate. And so that's really what we're looking for um, when we're looking at income. Every one of those sections has its own pitfalls. <laughs> but if I were to yeah. hazard a guess, I would say this is the area where we have the greatest potential for uh, a loan officer coming up with a different number than what an, an underwriter arrives at. You did a great job of walking through all of the different types of, of pay that we can have. Um, but with that, Randy, why, why do you think that is? Why is it that the income has more potential or for an underwriter to see it a, a little bit differently than what a loan officer does? Well, I mean, it just boils down to how people get paid. And, and, and the bottom line is people don't get paid the same. Um, and, and sometimes like I, I coming up, there was, uh, you know, different folks that, uh, um, you know, the three P's or whatever, but like drivers, um, and, and it's very important for truck drivers that, that you understand how their income works and how their expenses work, et cetera. So when you, when you sift through all that information, um, you're going to want to have it some, have it all set up the way that it actually can work. Um, and, and that you can actually use that income that I always tell people that or wanting to go into a driver's job that you want to 
you know, ideally for qualifying purposes, you want to find a, a W-2 type job that, that pays you a salary. Um, but, but that's not always the case that that can happen. And some people want to pay you by the mile and some people want to pay you by the load and, and that sort of stuff. And, 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 and anytime you hear the word variable income um, or that you understand that there's a variable income situation, that's when the, the, you know, we roll up the sleeves and we get really busy trying to make sure that we look at every pay stub, that we look at every little um, you know, thing on that pay stub to understand really how that person gets paid. Because ultimately what Gay said is right. We're trying to find a way to, to prove that they really can pay us. But, but the underwriter guidelines and, and all, but, but specifically VA says that two years is, is equated with stability. And so if you've been in a truck driving job for, you know, six or seven months, if it's not full-time W-2 um, salary type job, then we're going to really have to, to draw all the puzzle together with what you did for the previous job and how they paid you there and a history, et cetera. So it, it, it is really, really just difficult to do when you get in those situations where people aren't just the beautiful, easy, straight W-2 salaried job. Um, most people don't get paid that way, or a lot of people don't get paid that way. And so when we, when we get away from that, then we get into definitely looking at all sorts of different ways to put that together, to, to make it as structurally sound as we can for the underwriter to agree with. And in my case, I always write those out that, you know, with a, with a calculation, uh, Excel spreadsheet, et cetera, that this is, this is how I arrived at my income, write a note to it, et cetera, because the last thing I want them to do is have to discover it on their own, because that's when you get the biggest issues in my experience is if you don't give them the path and lay it out for them. And then that's, that's when they can get off into the weeds and, and leave you behind and, and then you've got to get them back on it. And it's much easier just to keep them on the path to begin with. And to yeah. your to so, your point, which was saying, to, to Randy's point there, if someone is a vice principal at the school and they know they make $87,000 a year, pretty straightforward. But a, a trucker who gets paid by the mile has been on a job for six months, was on a previous job that got a different mileage rate or was paid with a different structure or gets a bonus for each type of load. That's where it, it gets unique. So just kind of to close the loop on that variable income, what's variable? Lots of different types of variable income. The easy ones are bonuses, commissions, overtime, but then we get into like nurses will have shift differentials, mileage pay. There's probably a, a limitless different types of variable income, but that's what we mean. Things that are not certain. We don't know it's my- We're variable. There. Yeah, very, unfortunately, very variable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So real quick, I'll just I'll just add a couple of things. Um, so a lot of times, if you do have variable income, we're going to request additional documents. So if in the beginning we ask for like W-2s and pay stubs, and then we see that you have variable income, we're probably going to come back to you and ask for end of year pay stubs. Um, if you haven't been in a job very long, we may be looking for uh, like education or proof that you've done the job previously in a lot in your life or something like that. So a lot of times it's going to require additional income. And then the second thing I'll say is a lot of lenders offer services where if you collect all the documents and send it to them before you even pre-approve someone, they will calculate the income for you. 
Um, and then now you know what income that underwriter is going to use and approve, right? Because you've provided all the documents up front. It's kind of, you know, like a TBD underwrite, if you will, on income where they help calculate that for you. And pretty safe to say, like, I, we'll get the question fairly regularly that a borrower will go, will you send the file to underwriting before we go out and write an offer? And and for me, I go back to, well, you're the vice principal of the school. You make $87,000 a year. We don't need a whole lot of uh, help with that. But again, Randy's trucker with the, the mileage rate that just switched jobs six months ago, that's a very good example of when your loan officer might go, hey, I want the, the underwriter up front to tell us before we put you in escrow, before you put yeah. in your notice on your current residence, that we're all on the same page with that. Um, Gabe, before we For kind sure. of put that to bed in terms of, of income, maybe walk us through what a borrower should expect to provide in terms of income. You just talked about the additional stuff. What is the basics that everyone is going to provide to their loan officer so that the underwriter can review? And then maybe we kind of close back and, and talk again about what are the additional things? What's a verification of employment? What additional types of things we might need to document that variable income? Yeah, so, you know, at minimum, I'm going to need at least 30 days worth of pay stubs. This is like a nice, clean W-2 job you've had for eight years, right? Like super simple. Um, so I'm going to need at least 30 days worth of pay stubs and two years of W-2s. Uh, minimum, like that's minimum. Um, if you have any sort of anything that's variable about the pay um, or anything that is uh, uh, like, for example, active duty military pay is very easy. But if, if um, you know, all of the verification services are not quick and easy, we may have to go out and get a verification of employment or a verification of income. Um, you may be required to submit tax returns. You may be required to submit, um, um, what was I saying before? Um, end of year, uh, end of year pay stubs, so we can see year to date totals for all the different variable types of pay that you have. Um, feel free to jump in here, Randy. Um, <laughs> uh, there's there's so many different things that I've been asked for. I'm like, you want what? Like so, sometimes I may need a, a. One time I had to get a um, a diploma um, it, to show that a an individual had education and you know which counts toward income hit or employment history that two years employment history so she'd only been in the job about a year and some change but her degree was in that field so i had to get a diploma you know saying what the field what the what the degree was in so there are so many different things that we could use or, or come back and ask for to verify that income and or employment and one of the things that I've seen just today was was where the underwriter wanted a letter from the the borrower supervisor that really lined out. It was a newer job, and they they lined out that they wanted to know how many hours is this person guaranteed, because we saw we mm. we had a couple of paycheck subs that were light, and they actually happened to be around a a doctor's visit or whatever where they were out for a, the, a child, etc. But you know, it looked like they had 37 hours on that paycheck, um, a newer job, so there's not a long history. And they want to know, are you guaranteed this guy 40 hours a week? So there's there's things that sometimes can can come into play with that. Uh, you know, one of the big things that that is sometimes challenging as well is is cer certain companies have certain automated verifications of employment 
that that you have to use the work number or or something like that and then they don't always keep them updated so sometimes even though we have the work number we still have to reach out to supervisors and hr folks etc to get the information that that supports the the uh, consistency of the income across everything so so there's a lot of different uh, um, avenues that we may be forced to go to um, on, on variable type income. And, and the big thing with variable is that, you know, it, it, it's not the same every week. And so anything that might not be the same is, is going to have to be averaged. And one of the big things that we want to make folks understand is that the average doesn't always end up being an average either, because if you made 30,000 in overtime in 2021, but you had $12,000 in income in, in 2022 and then 2023, it's looking like you, like you have some different number, then it, it's not necessarily an average. We've got to support the fact of what is going to be ongoing that, that even though you had that $30,000 year of overtime, that that's not the number that they're going to play into play. So if, it, it, it's the worst case typically on a go forward basis. Can you live and can you support your budget if that $12,000 is what it is on, on a go forward basis? So so there's those sort of things that we get plugged into with variable. Um, and, and sometimes those are explained away. Obviously, we did a lot of that explaining with COVID where the jobs were related to um, the or the lack of income from jobs and hours and whatever was was related to the fact and it was a lot in, in nursing and different people that were affected by that stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and so the, we had to paint the picture to the underwriter with the actual documents that your stability moving forward and your ability to pay moving forward makes sense, but we don't get to use that $30,000 as an average if we're doing 12,000 this year. So. Yeah, and sometimes there's just things that we can't use, right? So a lot of times part-time pay can be very difficult to use. Um, and um, a, a, another thing is um, uh, the BAH stipend for um, the GI Bill. We can't use that. It feels permanent. It feels like you're going to be having it for a while, and it should be able to be counted, but but you can't. So um, there's, there's some things that are just off the table from the very beginning as well. Right. Some things, some things we have to prove that they go for 36 more months and, and, and along the lines of child support or that you're using for income or or, you know, different different things. We have to prove that they exist for 36 more months. And sometimes that bites us in the butt, because even though, like you said, it feels like it's going to go on forever. If we can't prove that it goes for 36 months, we can't use it. So. Right. I, I regularly find myself saying, I'm telling people what I do for a living, it's not rocket science. But then when we get in a conversation like this, I go, well, it's not quite rocket science, but it is more complicated than I give it credit for because it is silly because we could probably sit here for another 20 minutes and go, well, one more thing. Or what about this weird instance that oh really yes. our brains are little algorithms. It's if this, then that, if this, then that, what about that? So it starts with a good loan application. So you may find everyone I should say everyone, most loan officers use an online application. That's where you're going to start, where it pulls the boring demographic information out of your brain. Sometimes the systems are limited in what they gather. Sometimes the borrowers are limited in what they provide. And so mm -hmm. we're coming back after that saying, 
no, I really need all this information. We need this two-year history. We need to know the job title. We need to know what you do. We need to know how long you've done it. We need to know if you were in school before that, if you were off on, on family leave for any reason. All of that stuff allows us to get to the right answer so that when the file gets to the underwriter, they're just rubber stamping it. Now, on that topic, because we were having technical difficulties at the top of the show, I forgot to mention our primary purpose here, in addition to covering tonight's topic, is to answer you guys' questions. So if you have any questions, go ahead and throw them in the comments related to underwriting, anything else, VA-related, not VA-related, anything mortgage or real estate, we're happy to go through with you. And with that, we have a really good question here with all of the uh, fine details you guys went through on income. Gay is a license needed to be an underwriter. You need a license to originate a loan. Randy needs a license to originate a loan. I need a license to originate a loan. Does an underwriter who gets to check our work and tell us whether we did it right or not, are they required to be licensed? That's a really good question. I would assume so, but I honestly don't know the answer to that. My understanding is, is they are not because they're not making the sales decision on it. So if any, I, I know we have some of our other pros watching if you know that to be inaccurate, feel free to, to correct us. But I don't believe the underwriters are required to be licensed. It's mainly on the job training, working their way up through the system. They do have to have accreditation from VA, from FHA to underwrite those loans. So it's it's not a license, but it's also not, hey, you look smart, go underwrite this loan. You do have to have a history and a track record. And an it feels that way sometimes. And, and, and really, <laughs> I would say that the certifications that... Um, that they have are, are more along those lines of of, uh, of having a history and, and being mentored, etc. Um, but they they are de um, you know basically they they work to the point of having the ability to be um, uh, if if you go through the VA guidelines for instance the underwriters have to pass certain tests etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's not a license but it is a certification that they have to have. Um, and, uh, um, and, and it, and every company has to have a certain number of those folks that are, um, that are certified like that in order to, you may not, the one you may be working with may not be certified, but they are working under the tutelage of somebody else that is certified. So it's not a license, but there are certifications that they have to have. So perfect. Now, the next segment is not going to be nearly as detailed as income, especially in the context of VA loans, where a lot of these are done with zero down. But let's talk about assets. When we talk about assets, Randy, on a VA loan, what's important? What's an underwriter looking at? What are you looking at on the, the front end? What documents do you have to gather and what's important in there? Right. Well, basically, the VA loan is probably the easiest in that regard because there isn't the down payment component, et cetera, but there still is the uh, closing costs, escrows, and, you know, the funds needed to, to close. And so we basically have to provide that they have that. And I will say also that if you've got a questionable profile in any way, shape, or form, having more assets is, is something that is uh, um, not necessarily taken into consideration by, you know, black and white, but it is a, a variable um, and what, what we like to, like to call a, a, a factor that's compensates or a compensating factor for for those. So so the biggest thing is that you have the funds to actually do the transaction in front of you, um, and and that's going to typically be something where that you have the earnest money deposit, or different states call it different things. In Texas, we call it an earnest money deposit. What do you call it in California? The money that uh, they put down. Escrow deposit or earnest money deposit. Okay. So, so you got earnest money in, in Texas. We also have a little 
a smaller amount that's typically um, a uh, an option fee so that you can back out for any amount of time. Um, so you're going to have to have funds for that. You're going to have to have funds to pay for an appraisal. You're going to have to have funds to pay for inspections that have nothing to do necessarily with the VA loan, but just how you certify that you understand that this property is a, a solid property. So those inspections don't ever come back to us, but you still have to have those those monies. Um, and, and and when we look at those the full package, we're just looking to make sure that you've got enough to to make the make the transaction happen. So the underwriter is going to look at the file. They're going to look at the loan estimate. They're going to look at an estimated settlement statement from the title or escrow company and say, okay, we need $8,200 or we need $18,000 or $82,000. When they go then, Gay, and compare it to the asset documents we provided, whether it's an investment account or a checking account, what is the underwriter doing when they're actually underwriting those asset statements? Why is it important that we get two months? Why is it important that we get all of the pages? What What is an underwriter that's that's nitpicking and going through? What are they actually looking for in there? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. So first of all, they're going to be making sure it's liquid, right? So if it's something that um, say you have an investment fund that if you liquidate it, it's going to significantly, you're going to have to pay a bunch of fees and it's going to reduce it maybe. So like a $40,000 investment account may only be worth 25000 or something like that, right? So they're looking to see the liquidity. They're also going to look like in detail at every single transaction on that bank statement to make sure that... Um, a couple of things. One, they're looking to see if there's any debts that you're paying that potentially were not disclosed. They're making sure that there aren't any um, really large deposits or withdrawals that can't be accounted for, particularly deposits. And I think most underwriters have a rule of 1% of the loan amount, anything over that is considered a large deposit, and they're going to want to see it sourced. Um, and so say that came from an account that you haven't disclosed, they're going to they're gonna want to see now the, the statements for that account to see where, where that money came from. And, you know, we have a duty to make sure that there's no money laundering, that terrorists aren't involved, uh, so on and so forth. And so, um, it, you know, we're not, they're not just looking at the bottom line number. They're looking at every single line item on that asset statement to make sure that you came about those funds in a um, authorized and sourced manner. And what, what, what is their concern? I, and this, there's probably like 15 correct answers to this, but let's say um, <laughs> I had a $50,000 deposit last month. So what? I got it. It's in my account. You see it. Why is an underwriter concerned that there's a giant lump sum of $50,000 dropping into my account last month? Well, what are you doing, Josh? Like, how did you get that money? Where did it come from? I could, I could have done lots of things. I, I've got a paper route. I could have sold my classic car. I could have done Yeah, a paper. A paper route route is great, but uh, you know, a, a gangster, you know, giving you money is not okay. <laughs> or, um, or it could have been a gift. Maybe it was a gift, right? And so, which is fine, but now we have to um, source that. The um, donor has to verify that it's not a loan. Um, and you know, again, we have to verify it's not a debt someplace else. Um, and if I'm missing something obvious, feel free to jump in there, Randy. Well, that's the biggest thing is is if there's a you know twenty thousand dollar deposit 
is there a, a now a payment that goes along with that twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars? And if so, how does that affect the the budget, etc.? Because and some people think that you can't borrow any money, you can't do anything, etc. That's not the case. But if you do things, that it, it has to still make sense, and you still have to be able to to budget and and be able to uh, pay for what we are asking you to pay for with with the house itself. So if that twenty thousand or fifty thousand and Josh's case came with a, you know, $1,500 a month payment, that $1,500 a month payment might sink your budget. And, and so that's what they're looking for. Um, and obviously there's still the, the, you know, money laundering and that sort of stuff that, that is a possibility as well. But you're, you your typical person, it, we're looking for, how does that affect your budget? And, you know, mm-hmm. where, where do you get those, that funds is important. You know, I've, I've had a guy that sold a horse for $47,000. Well, we had to, we it's had nice to source, <laughs> we had to source that horse. It was, you know, and, yeah. um, and, and so there were a few things out of the ordinary that we had to have a, a, a valuation, a, a, a appraisal, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In his case, he was using those funds for a down payment and there was no payment associated with that horse. That was an actual sale, but we had to jump through hoops to make sure that the, that it wasn't mm-hmm. something nefarious, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and that timeline, just think about that. It's pulled two months ago. I have no loans showing up there. I can go out a week ago, you know, six, seven weeks after the fact and get that $50,000 loan. So I'm saying, no, I told you about all my debts. You have my, you know, 60 day old credit report, which is good for another 30 to 60 days. But um, I'm actually hiding something. So that's why the biggest reasons, yes, they may be worried about nefarious goings on in the background, but the big one is is the, the potential for a loan that has a payment going along with it. So oftentimes- uh, True story, sort of a- true story. I had a buyer one time submit his application. Everything was fine. I, re- I got got all the details, ran all the numbers, everything looked good. And then I'm going through his bank statement and I see- right at the very end of the most recent bank statement of payment to like, you know, Toyota credit. And I was like, text, did you buy a car recently? And he's like, Oh yeah. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like (laughs) it's like an $800 payment. Oh yeah. Oops. You know? (laughs) So it, it does happen. And it was an honest mistake. Like he just, you know, we pulled his credit. He didn't think twice about it, but it hadn't hit his credit yet but it was an obligation that he had and it was right there on the bank statements you didn't same, tell us same true story I, I have the almost similar the guy was buying a a, a property with some acreage and we, it was fully pre-approved etc he had the budget everything worked and then i i see something on his account and it's a a thirteen hundred dollar amount that he pays out and I said, wait a minute, what's this $1,300? And he said, well, we we bought two tractors. They were same as cash. And if we pay them out over 72 months, it's $1,300 with no interest. And I said, but what are you going to mow with those tractors? Because you can't buy your land now. You can't buy the house with the land because it just sunk you. I'm like, Ugh. go. True story. And the, the funny the funny thing is, in both of your situations, I do know what the last part of what the borrower said is, because it always comes out to this. Is that going to be a problem? Yeah. They will. <laughs> is that going to be a problem? 
Oh no, no, we were already at a max DTI and now you have another 800 or $1,300. Not, not a problem at all, as long as you're happy living where you live now. Exactly. So a big piece of what we're talking about and why we're talking about this tonight for you guys' benefit is borrowers that are dishonest in terms of talking to us, but they do regularly try to edit their situation and think that, well, I'm going to present this or I'm going to present that. And it, the underwriter is going to catch this. These are people who are paid to be finely detailed and to go through and review everything in this transaction. So if you tell us up front, we can work through it within the guidelines and make sure you still get approved and get your house. If you try to edit the, and give us bits and pieces, there is a 99% chance that it is going to come out and bite you somewhere later on in the process. So honestly, to me, the whole reason of telling you guys this, of seeing what goes into it, so you can see the level of detail and minutia that is going to be reviewed so that you know why and how this is so important to accurately get this information to your loan officer who can then share it with your underwriter. Even going back to, we haven't talked too much about the loan application, but we got a loan application review, what was it 18, 24 months ago? We finally got a new one after 30 years of the same old crappy one. And something that's often overlooked is the declarations towards the back of it. And they tighten those up a lot. Things that people used to be able to say, well, you didn't really ask that, or, oh, I don't know that. You're like, no, the application says very specifically, is there any other undisclosed debt that you haven't told me about? And you are signing under penalty of perjury that I have disclosed everything to the, the lender. So um, that new loan application is very good in terms of it asks the questions in the ways they should be asked so that there is nothing that falls into a gray area that you can just say, well, I didn't disclose it because you didn't ask. It is asked in very broad questions that make sure you are honestly telling the lender everything that's going to come there. So and one of the wins on that is that the loan officer has to ask if you're a veteran. That was a huge win when they, everything else, I don't know, but that aspect. Well, cl close the loop on that, Randy. Why, why is that important? Because for so many years, nobody would even ask if you were a veteran and, and not even offer you the VA loan. And unless you brought it up yourself, you wouldn't be able to even, it wasn't even part of the discussion. And, and now they have to ask it to, if they're in compliance, they have to ask if you're a veteran. It's a beautiful thing. And there's so much bad information out there on who's eligible for the VA loan that there's a lot of veterans out there to this day that still don't even know they're eligible for it. So um, it, it's an important question to ask. You know, I anytime I get a new client, I always ask if I don't know up front, I always ask if they're a veteran. Um, oh, well, now it's required. It's on it's on the application. But um, you know, I always ask that question, but because there's just so many you don't know. Right. So there were a lot of people, a lot of people through the years that ended up not getting VA loans that would have been far and away the best option for them because it wasn't asked. Sure. We are now joined by uh, Brendan McKay, another loan originator Brendan. from on the other side of the country in Maryland. So almost nine o'clock fresh out of his city council meeting. Brendan, is that where you were coming from? Uh, county, 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 county council, some state delegates. So yeah, uh, not even a county issue. I would call it a neighborhood issue. So yeah. 
Perfect. Well, let, we're going to throw you into the deep end. We're just going to jump in and start firing questions at you. So maybe, uh, hopefully you were able to listen on your way in from that. We actually actually have a question here. V. Ali says, can any other person or position override an underwriter's decision, be it an approval or a denial? We would hope they wouldn't come and override an underwriter's approval. But if your loan's denied, Brendan, can someone else uh, override that? Is there an authority we can appeal to if, if we get an underwriter declining a loan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, everyone has a boss, right? And underwriters uh, have bosses. There are underwriting managers or more senior underwriters. Um, oftentimes, an underwriter that's that's underwriting a VA loan is, is likely to be more senior because of the higher requirements put on on an underwriter to be eligible for underwriting VA loans, and and which might not be widely known. Not every underwriter at a lender is allowed to underwrite VA loans. There's a special classification for it. Um, but yeah, absolutely, they have a manager. Um, and if they if either made a mistake or an incorrect decision, or oftentimes in the case of manual approvals, it is somewhat of a judgment call. Um, the, the, their manager can absolutely um, uh, change that decision. Um, and one helpful place to go is is to the RLC. Like the VA will weigh in on loan level decisions as well. And if you can get the VA to say that yeah, the situation's fine, um, you can get you can get a situation turned around. Um, I, now. On the technicality of when a denial goes out, that I, I, there, there might be some uh, difficulty with recourse on, on getting it reversed or whatever, but a, a, a new loan could basically be started, a lot could be transferred over and, 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 and getting around any of those sorts of issues as well. But um, yeah, so you, you should be able to, if you have the truth on your side, you should be able to get it turned around. And maybe maybe any of you three re react to this i had a situation in the last week that it was fine because we were able to provide what the lender wanted so they accepted it um but we were being asked for something that was crazy it was an approved condo and they wanted a private road uh, agreement which is not required it's part of va's review of the condominium and i reached out to the rlc they were kindly enough to walk me through and show me right in chapter 13 exactly what we show and we sent it back over to the lender and they said um, that's fine that someone at the RLC told you that, but we had this as an issue on a previous file and we weren't able to get that loan insured. So we're going to require this again. It didn't end up being a big deal because we got it. But remember that the lender doesn't have to approve the loan just because the VA says it does meet the guidelines. They have to be comfortable that they're going to be able to sell that loan, get it insured. So it, it doesn't happen very often, but there are situations where you can have some some weirdness like that. So. Brendan, you're just doing so good answering questions. We're going to keep it on you. We're just going to go go uh, rapid fire at Brendan. But we've talked about income. We've talked about assets. Tell us a little bit about credit, the credit report, and what an underwriter is reviewing in terms of credit when they are going through one of your borrower's files. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I do like, Josh, just I'll quickly comment on the situation you mentioned. I had a similar one. It was on an FHA loan, not a VA loan. Um, and I just raised hell about it until I got, and I said, that's, that's fine. Cause they said, well, we had a loan have to get bought back for this reason. And I'm like, then make an overlay. That is what overlays are for. Um, overlays are basically when lenders have additional requirements above and beyond the standard guidelines. Totally fine. They can make the rules however they want to, but, um, they should have them in writing, um, so that people know about it beforehand. And you're not in a situation where loans are getting denied for reasons that they shouldn't be. Um, when an underwriter is reviewing credit. Um, I think sometimes it depends a little bit on, on the situation. Um, when everything's perfect and pristine, it's probably a pretty cursory review. Um, but when, uh, especially on manual underwrite situations, so where you do not get an automated underwriting decision, 
Um, they're looking at you know overall overall history, um, but with an special and particular focus on lates and lates in the last twelve months um, are of heightened importance. So one of the first baseline requirements for even being eligible for manual underwriting um, approval is not having any lates in the last twelve months. So that's something they're going to super hone in and focus on. Um, but they're also looking at what the minimum debt obligations are. So like you have a credit card bill and it has a minimum payment. That payment is going to be counted against what's called your debt to income calculation um, or your residual income calculation as well. Um, so that's the type of stuff they're looking at. It's, I'm sure much other stuff as well, but yeah. We could probably do an entire episode on this. There is enough detail in here that we could go for 40, 45 minutes just on what they're actually looking at. Um, Randy, what happens if the borrower, um, we'll go back to Josh that has the magical $50,000 that just popped up into his account. He's got a couple collections on there. He didn't, didn't pay for his cell phone bill and didn't do this. Do you have to pay them off? Is there a threshold at which they become required to be paid off? Is it underwriter's discretion? What are you looking at at some minor um, derogatories like collections and charge-offs? Basically, the, the way that I approach those is if, if the findings address them, then I have to address them. If the findings don't address them, then I don't have to address them. So so the minor stuff, et cetera, um, the, the automated underwriting system is going to tell us what we have to do with those things. And we go from there. And and that's one of the reasons why we want to do that very early in the process, why it is kind of important to get a real credit report, a thorough application, all your documentation, run it through the automated because it can make for a much smoother and easier process. Gay, anything you feel like we didn't cover on credit? It's almost, it's funny, it's kind of easy to gloss over because most loans are going to go through automated. We now pull the credit online. It's this cute little PDF and the data pulls into our, our software in XML. Um, a lot of people don't look at it nearly as closely as what it was looked at 25 years ago. Um, but anything you feel like we haven't covered on that credit topic? Yeah, I mean, we brought up automated underwriting, and I don't know if you guys talked about that or not at the very beginning of the show when I was trying to get connected, but um, I think that might be the first mention of automated underwriting. Um, but, you know, just to kind of talk about what that is and how it works, essentially, um, we have to have a credit report in the file um, and, you know, certain details about the file, income, assets, all the things that we've talked about so far, right? Um, and we can run the file through, uh, you know, like literally we click a button, we're like run automated underwriting on this and it checks all sorts of things, but it's not a human. Um, but it gives us a really good idea on whether or not, um, you know, the loan meets, you know, kind of the minimum criteria that a lender is is looking for in order to approve the loan. And so from there, you kind of get two buckets, like it's either approved, eligible, everything's good to go, or you could get, um, you know, a refer or um, what's the other, there's another rating. Um, but bottom line is that will probably determine whether or not you're going to go through a normal uh, uh, um, underwriting process, um, a little bit condensed underwriting process, or a manual underwriting process, which which you guys spoke about a little bit, but um, already. So I don't want to dive deep into that that topic. But that is kind of our first indication on which way it's going to go. There isn't always a clear like line that says like if the DTI is this number or higher, it's automatically going to be manual. Or if it's this credit score or lower, it's automatically going to be manual. Um, I've seen like, you know, 
low 600 credit scores get automated underwriting, uh, you know, approved results. And I've seen slightly higher credit scores get not, you know, not approved where I have to go manual or refer. Um, and, and same with DTI. I've seen lower DTIs result in refers where I've got to go a manual underwrite. And I've seen, um, you know, higher DTIs, very high DTIs go all the way through automated with no problem. Um, yeah. But it is a good, like, kind of starting point for us. Maybe talk about that a little more, Gabe. So Randy talked about one of the big advantages of automated underwriting. If you get an automated mm -hmm. approval and you have some collections on there and it says, hey, I see the collections and I don't care. Well, cool. We just move on and ignore it. You just talked about one of the, the big benefits is debt to income ratio. Talk about debt to income ratio when you have an automated approval versus when you have a manual approval. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you have an automated approval, well, first of all, it's not always 100% accurate um, because it is looking at just debt to income. Um, and a lot of times the more important, well, almost always the more important number is the residual income, which automated underwriting doesn't really do that calculation um, correctly. So it's very important. Once again, back to one of the, you know, we keep, you know, beating this drum. It's so important to work with a loan officer who understands in detail the VA loan and the nuances of the VA loan, because that little calculation, everything can look great on the file. You can get automated approved, all sorts of things. And if that little calculation is wrong, it will totally just derail the file. Um, and so, um, and, and basically residual income um, is, I'll just quickly talk about that. Um, residual income is essentially um, your income after the majority of your expenses have been paid. So it accounts for um, uh, taxes, you know, so in state, state income taxes, Social Security, um, things like that. It accounts for a maintenance fee. It accounts for the full mortgage payment, all of your debts, um, any state income taxes that you pay. Um, and then it also, there's a certain threshold you have to meet based on your family size and the region of the country that you live in. Um, and it is almost always a manual calculation that has to be done. Um, and it, it's, it's an incredibly important calculation. So, um, uh, anyway, I think I got off track from the question. Your question was no, no, about no. That, like I, I absolutely a... wanted to go down that path. That was that was perfect because we didn't go super deep on manual versus uh, automated, and then that residual income is one of the unique pieces of underwriting. No other yes. underwriter is really going to do that residual income calculation, and if you fail it, you got a problem. Yes, and, yeah. and one of the important things to say, and, and and it's just common sense, but but the old garbage in, garbage out. Again, I think yes. that's, that's the most important thing. You can get a perfect approval on a file, but if you didn't put the right information in, if you didn't put the right income, et cetera, that, that's worth nothing. And, and that's where the underwriter comes back in later and says, hey, you know, you've got this for your income, but this is what I get for my income. And when I put that in, I don't lose my automated approval. Those are the things that, that again, having the right loan officer will make a difference for you. There's two things I'd love to add on to what Gay and Randy just said was one, and just that the, the, like the manual underwrite is basically when you don't, the system does not automatically approve you and it's more of a common sense approach that everybody's always asking for. One of the ma many amazing things about VA loans is that um, common sense actually matters um, with, with VA guidelines. Um, 
where DTI will come into more effect on a manual underwrite is, is lender overlays, so additional rules, which I just mentioned earlier. Many lenders, um, first, some lenders just won't do manual underwrites. Um, many of the ones that do have a cap of 50% debt to income ratio on manual underwrites. The highest that I've seen is 60%. Um, the VA does not specifically set those parameters, but lenders do um, oftentimes. Uh, and it took me a while to really understand residual income calculation, to be honest with you. And the, the best way I've kind of figured out, as I just showed the blanket that I have, uh, the way to understand is so debt to income ratio. Say you have somebody that makes uh, uh, $100,000 a year and they have $50,000 in expenses a, a year. Their DTI is 50%, right? You have someone else that has, makes a million dollars a year and has $500,000 in, in, in expenses. They are also 50% DTI, but... I think most people would say that first, both of them are spending way too much money, but also the person with a, that makes a million dollars a year has a lot more leftover income after everything than the person that makes $100,000 a year. And residual income looks at things more that way than just, just a percentage-based way. Um, so some people, and VA included, thinks it's a better true testament of how much money people have left over at the end of the day after all their bills are paid and, and, and can they afford this mortgage or not. Well, if you if you look at it, default rates on VA loans, regardless of the fact that zero down required, so no skin in the game, and um, slightly lower credit scores than conventional loans, while still good, they have some of the lowest default rates in the business because of that residual income calculation. And I sometimes feel like I'm beating a dead horse here on the show and in real life telling people, if you are a veteran and you're getting a VA loan, please, please, please work with a loan officer that has extensive experience in VA loans. And that residual income calculation may be the, the biggest reason. So I want to ask you guys, we're covering different parts of the country. Brendan off in Maryland, Brandy in Texas, Gaze in Colorado. I'm here in, in California. We, at least in California, regularly are asked to review an offer on one of our agent's properties and say, hey, will you take a look at this, look at these automated findings and tell me if you think that borrower is well qualified. And I will say, I don't know if it's nine times out of 10, seven times out of 10, if I look at the automated findings on a VA file, it shows you the residual income and you can look at it and the number is so absurd, you know that they did not run the residual right. income calculation. Is that you guys experience in, in, in your neck of the woods when you're looking at that stuff? Yeah. I, that's not a common practice in my market. Um, I, I, I know it's very common in California and it's, it's not completely unheard of, but yeah, it's not, it's not, not commonly done out here. It, it shocks me that nearly every time you look at it, you're like, they make $9,000 a month as a family. And it says $3,400 residual income. I know that is not true. Well, so uh, it's, yeah, you can immediately be like, you're like, they might still qualify for the house, but this is sloppy work right here. You yes. can identify it in two seconds. And, and that's, that's cause for concern enough that, you know, that what else are they missing? What else did they rush through? And like Randy said, junk in, junk out, you know, um, it's a, a clear sign that that's what's happening there. Absolutely. So let's move on to probably the most boring piece of it from a consumer's perspective, a borrower's perspective, because they don't get too, too deep into this. But Brendan, since you've been, uh, you, you got limited here with your limited time, we're gonna get as many answers out of you as we can. That's when Brandy and when, are much more interesting than I am, but yeah, you're welcome to Pepper Booty away. We, yeah. we got we got Brendan in here just because he's pretty to look at. The other two we have for their brains. 
So when your underwriter gets to the part where they're underwriting the property, so generally we're talking about appraisal, we're talking about potentially, uh, well, on the VA, not really condo docs because the VA is already taking care of that piece, yeah. but um, the title report and the appraisal, what's your, what is your underwriter reviewing? What are they looking at? What are they looking for? So um, the appraisal, uh, it's kind of a lot more streamlined, at least in my opinion. Um, and, and compared to when I got into the industry, which was 2005, and back then underwriters were commonly making revision requests on, on appraisals on, on almost all the time or comment asking for additional comment on this, that. That happens a lot less now. Um, the appraisers are, and, and, and in part because of how much higher of a standard appraisers are held to now compared to back then. Um, it, it was nuts back then, um, the amount of pressure that was getting put on, on appraisers by, by loan officers and realtors. Um, and that is really not the case anymore. And, and just the actual appraisal report has changed so much um, that they're, they're almost like, especially on VA loans, the VA appraiser, just like a VA underwriter, has to go through a, a, an additional level of qualification to be able to do VA appraisers. They have to be approved for the VA and all that stuff. Um, and they are appraising it to VA guidelines. So the, the appraiser is, is usually already proactively addressing all these things. And some things that, that a VA appraiser will look for uh, that, that a non-VA, you know, a conventional appraisal might, might, might ignore are typically what I see most common are county code. So they are going to appraise the county code. If there's a requirement in the county code, uh, that is not met in the house and they notice it, they are going to bring it up and require that it, it be brought up to code uh, uh, before before closing. Um, where on a conventional, it might not be. It depends on what it is. If it's something like, you know, fire detectors and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. But the most common one that gets brought up all the time is handrails, uh, safety stuff, handrails on stairwells um, are, are getting put in there. So it's stuff like that. In my opinion, um, I think there's still more of a negative stigma about VA appraisals uh, within the professional community um, with realtors and even with some loan officers than there should be um, because perception hasn't caught up with reality. It used to be that there was a whole litany of, of things that the VA required that, that conventional uh, appraisals did not require. That has narrowed significantly. Um, and in fact, for the first time last year, VA released appraisal data, which was amazing. Um, and VA appraisals come in at, at contract value more often than conventional appraisals do. Um, so just that in and of itself is like a big concern of, 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 of some professionals. It's just not, not real. So I do think there's some coming back as I get away from your question about what underwriters are looking for. But um, that, that's kind of a full scope on how I see the world of VA appraisals and what's changed recently. Would you, would you agree with this? Really, when that appraisal comes back and we know what's going on to underwriting, for us, when we're looking and saying, is there going to be an issue here? We want to look at the value. Obviously, did our value come in? And then the other thing with the VA, there are minimum property requirements, which we've done an entire show on this. We want to see, is there anything in there that does not meet the, the NPRs? Really, those are the, the two things we're we're looking for. Randy, you look like you got something that you, you thought might. Well, just one one thing that just added to Brandon is is the one difference that I see is the VA underwriter has to issue a notice of value, and and I don't see that on conventional or FHA etc. Where that the, that that rubber stamp is there um, as a as a final stamp, and you're and you're good to go. We don't see that on other loan types. 
So that's that's the appraisal piece of it. Do we have the value? Is the property in good condition? Gay, how does the title report come into play? What is an underwriter looking at there? Yeah, so they want to make sure that there's no liens against the property. Um, and if there's a, you know, um, you know, usually the underwriters don't get involved with surveys. A lot of times that's, uh, you know, the title company that'll, that'll care about that. But, um, you know, I, I, generally speaking, they just want to make sure that, um, that there's no potential that some other party has, can make a claim to that collateral, because at the end of the day, that is what is, uh, you know, what's backing um, you know, the loan essentially, right? Hey, I'm going to give you this money, but, um, but in number one, you have to be able to repay it. All these things we talked about already, but number two, I want to make sure that nobody can come after this property other than us. Yep. So like to what exactly what Gay said, they're like ensuring that at the end of the transaction, the buyer owns 100% of the property, right? So mm -hmm. specific stuff they're looking for is, is outstanding mortgages, right? So if the seller has an outstanding mortgage, the title work will identify that and then the settlement company ensures that that mortgage is paid off um, at closing before the seller gets any money because that lien needs to be released from the property that's is standard textbook stuff stuff that that might you know might not always be thought of is is second mortgages that are really old and weren't recorded properly so they go back 60 years and and look you know through through the, the title history of the property to make sure that every lien that was ever on there was properly released or if the seller hasn't been paying their tax bills or their real estate tax bills, right? There will be a tax lien on the property. Um, and, and even before that, they're checking to see if there is an outstanding real estate tax balance and that that is satisfied at closing and doesn't follow the buyer, right? Or, you know, uh, other mu municipality stuff, or if there's a homeowners association, if they're behind on the homeowners association dues, they're checking for that and making sure there hasn't been a lien placed on the property because they haven't been paying their HOA dues or condo dues. Um, that's the type of stuff I used to work, um, run a closing department at, at a lender and review title reports. And that's the type of stuff uh, that, that we'd be looking for when, when we're talking about that kind of stuff and making sure everything's released properly. And a lot of times. Oh, sorry. No, what I was, was saying in that context, there's a piece of it that the borrowers don't realize is related back to underwriting. Escrow sends out a request for a statement of information saying, where have you lived for the last 10 years? Who have you been married to? Where have you worked? And you go, what in the world is this? Why do I have to provide this? And we'll follow up and say, hey, you did not get that back to title. And so we have a partial title report. They're going to go and research the current owner. They're going to research you. And they're going to look at their title liens. Are there any lawsuits, judgments, yeah. things that may not show up on our credit report that may not already be recorded against title. And they're doing that to protect the lender to make sure that you're getting a good interest in that property so you're not likely to default on it because there was an extra hundred thousand dollar judgment tied to it but also for you they want to make sure that you are going to get that so i, I didn't want to cut you off gay but i just want to kind of close that loop for people because a lot of times they're like what is this weird document why is everyone asking me did i get it back to them yet yeah and they're also going to do things like they're going to like match everything up so they're going to match the contract to the title documents to the um, to the appraisal, so you know if it's you know 2.7 acres, it needs to be 2.7 acres across the board. If it is you know um, one single family residence, it needs to be one single family. Re like you'd be surprised sometimes title finds outbuildings um, that weren't accounted for, or um, they find that um, you know a, 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 a piece of land was 
um, you know, like a survey was done and it was kind of cut off. And then the, the uh, um, uh, contract doesn't match what the, you know, what the new legal description is, so on and so forth. So there's, there's a lot of um, like really boring details <laughs> that go into the back end, um, just making sure that, um, you know, what you're paying for is what you're getting and what the lender is uh, lending you money for is, is what indeed, you know, your the buyer is getting. And the, the thing, and you're right, like this is the most boring part of it that no one cares about. <laughs> but um, I think something that most people don't realize is that uh, the land records in this country are a, a disaster. It is a mess. So it is not like, oh, I can just go on my computer and do, 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 do. A lot of times, like there's some of that, um, but like the, the, the process of pulling a title reports in most states and counties involve somebody going to a courthouse and, and, and pulling documentation. Um, and, and, and these are contracted people that work with the settlement company um, and they're called title abstractors. And they literally go down to the courthouse and do this in person. So like, and, and you think about the all 50 states and the thousands of county courthouses that all revolve on slightly different systems and stuff like that. They are not synced up in, in a way that, that would be a system that makes sense. Um, and it needs to be, and it's slowly, slowly happening, but it's, it's going to be a very long time. Um, and it's one of the many reasons that like digital closings are still problematic, um, because uh, all, getting all these different courthouses to be able to accept, you know, digital like recordings of notes and stuff like that. And all the different rules that are going on, it's just a much more messy, messy process than people think it is. I have some awareness of how it works in other countries It's better than there because our country's not as old as theirs are, but um it is it is still absolutely a mess and, and having to go back <laughs> 60 years of stuff is not something you can do with a snap of a finger like you think so we tried to keep these shows to about an hour we were about five minutes late so we're over an hour already i i always like to wrap up the show by going around the horn letting everyone go through their final thoughts anything we thought we missed um i think we've gone through pretty good detail and so i don't think there's a whole lot there so before we do that i wanted to um to ask questions. So Brendan, you said you've been doing this since 2005. So 18 years. Um, this is my 27th year. Randy, you've only, you're only like 23. So you've been doing this three, four years now. H how long have you been doing, doing loans and VA loans, Randy? 35 years. So 35. So Gay, are you going to one up all of us and say you've been doing this for like, no, she's just the smartest person here. She that, that doesn't have been doing it that long, but yeah. <laughs> No, I am just about to hit uh, I'm about two weeks away from three years. Well, what what Gabe does have on us, what did what how long was your career in the U U.S. Air Force? Yeah, so I was in the Air Force for 30 years, so I was kind of busy uh, before I started doing this. <laughs> So just to, to put it in context, I, I would say I had no idea that three years, five years, 13 years was a possibility. But what I wanted to say is this is what you're looking for when you're going out to find someone to do your VA mortgage. There are so many nuances to mortgages in general, but VAs specifically, that you really need this level of knowledge and experience on, on your side. And someone can, obviously, as Gay has proven, gather that in three years. So it's not number of years in the business, it's commitment and diligence and wanting to learn and know and be able to serve veterans and, and other borrowers. So with that- And having Randy, a community like Vetted VA absolutely helps a ton. I mean, I could only imagine, you know, I think I've been invented VA as long as you've been in the business, but that would have been like the most massive <laughs> accelerator 
as as it goes because I like there are things that come up in our group discussions that I'm like I I didn't know anything that off the wall ever came up and anyone could answer that but there is almost always someone in the group that has had that crazy off the wall it's, experience and has the answer for solving it. Yeah, it's always random. Anyone who's anyone who's been in the military um, knows that, you know, the best way to, you know, really get up to speed very quickly on something is exposure and repetition. And that's exactly what vetted VA does for all of its moderators. It forces that and um, it, it really accelerated my learning and, and knowledge of the VA loan in like ways it's really even hard to explain, um, but it was just exponential um, how quickly I was up to speed just based on the fact that I was part of this community. So I'll forever be grateful for that. And we talk, we talk about the map in terms of if you're watching this and you're a borrower, if you're a professional and you're watching this now or later, um, Nathan, at least in the Facebook chat, there are some links to, to training and joining the group. If you have done a few VA loans and you would like to become an expert on this, I actually had a call from someone that reached out that, you know, VA HQ or VA HQ will say, hey, call this person, ask what they think about it. And I'm like, I, we don't have to have this conversation. I can just do it. Like there's, I can tell you in great detail, or I could just tell you, you, there's nothing else out there. There's nothing that compares to it. Um, and even if there were no training, which the training and testing is extensive and difficult, but even if that weren't there, just the group, the group atmosphere and being able to, to deal with people who are doing this on a regular basis and have a heart to serve. So now that the commercial for joining Vetted VA or working with the Vetted <laughs> VA Pro is over, let's start again with you here, uh, Randy, and just tell us your final thoughts on underwriting, what you want to share or what you think people should know or you would like them to know about the underwriting process. And I, I go back to the, the same thing. It's garbage in, garbage out that, that uh, um, if, if your originator is knows what they're doing, they're passionate about the guidelines, know the guidelines, et cetera, and then uh, package accordingly, then, then they're giving a good package. They're writing a note to, to the underwriter. They're lining it all out so that everybody's on the same pathway. Um, that's the way to make the, this underwriting work. It's, it's all about being consistently uh, communicating properly laying out the path that you want that underwriter to take and then supporting anything that may be a little bit off with documentation. And here's what I did. You just don't want to turn underwriters loose to, to their own, whatever they want to find. You, you want to take them right down the path where that here's a, here's B, here's C, and it ends up in an approval. And, and that's the most important thing that I would tell you for underwriting is finding someone that knows how to help these people get to the point where that they don't have to go experiment on their own and find off in the weeds. <laughs> Grab them by the nose and lead them where you want them to go. There you go. Brendan, what are your final thoughts? I, I couldn't agree more with what Randy just said. Um, and and so I like you referenced 18 years. I, I did run away for three years in fairness, so it's only been 15. But a lot of that, my time was spent in operations and underwriting. Um, and, and Randy's absolutely correct. Um, we do a cover letter on every single file that we do. I don't care if the file is perfect. We just go, this is a super clean one. Here it is. Um, it, and if there is a problem, we proactively point it out. We're like, we're aware of this. Here's what's going on. Or here's the supporting documentation on why this is not a problem. And, and that is what you want in a loan officer. We can talk about underwriting and, and, and I'll circle back in a second, but like 
they need to be proactive about it because if you're pointing out problems and explaining why it's not actually a problem, that is a far better situation than if an underwriter finds a problem on their own and they are, you know, suspicious people by nature, which is what we want them to do, right? They are making sure that that good loans are going through. It's a very important thing. They're not the bad guy, but if they identify the problem themselves, they're going to come to a very different conclusion than what might actually be happening. They're going to think worst case. And or they might even think that they, you were trying to hide it from them and stuff like that. And it's just not the way to go about it. And you, you to be at working with a loan officer that, that's proactive, you need to be working with a loan officer that understands underwriting well enough. So when whenever I hear professionals say, oh, the underwriter this, the underwriter that, or this or that, I'm, I'm always suspicious of that because they're playing by the exact same rules that we are. And all of their guidelines are publicly available information. I'm not expecting consumers to be able to go through it because they're dense and boring and sometimes difficult to navigate, but that is that is my job. My job is to know the rules, um, and we take extreme accountability with that. You'll never hear me or anyone from our team, both to another professional, to a, a borrower, or to a realtor, blame anything on the underwriter. It is our fault um, if, if, if a mistake happens or, or whatever it is. Um, so it's there's no surprises in, in, in this world. Now, mistakes happen. And we will take accountability for making mistakes, um, but we're not going to blame the underwriter like it's just some mysterious black hole that loans go into because that's just simply not the case. Um, every professional loan officer has the ability to have the same level of expertise that underwriters do. And frankly, the last thing I'll say on it is they're also available, right? We like if we have a gray area situation that we're not sure of, you darn sure better be clear that we're getting an underwriter to say, yeah, we're okay with the situation. Before that, that buyer is even making offers on properties. I would never want to put someone in that situation. So um, that's the, the last word on underwriting is make sure that you're working with a professional that 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 understands how that world works and, and has the same level of expertise that everybody on this call does, um, especially Randy and Gay, because they know what they're doing. So there you go. <laughs> Gay, I saw what you did there. You, you wanted the final word. So you exited <laughs> and then came back on the <laughs> other side of Brendan so, so you could have the final word. This is my good I don't even know what happened there. I don't even know what happened. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. Um, So, you know, uh, you know, obviously these guys, uh, you know, really hit on everything, um, you know, related to underwriting and how to be successful. Um, I guess the only thing I'll add is just make sure, you know, once you've picked out that loan officer that's got Um, you know, that background that you're looking for, that's the expert, make sure you're communicating. Don't give them a hard time when they come to you and ask you for additional documents. There's a reason why we don't ask for additional documents because we feel like, you know, it'll be fun or let's bother them again and ask for documents. Like we really don't like to do that. Um, So if we're asking, there's a reason if your loan officer doesn't offer it up, uh, you know, offer that reason up, ask them and understand what's going on so you have uh you know the full background and the you know kind of the full picture of what's going on with your loan um and and you know why they're asking for those additional documents um and you know just uh, you know as long as you're honest up front with us and communicate frequently um and keep those channels of communication open then you really should not have any issues at all I had three points I wanted to make, and these three loan wizards um, made those points very eloquently already. So I have nothing left to do but say goodnight. So.